Let's turn together in our Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3, we're going to read verse 2 through verse 6. Galatians 3, verse 2 to verse 6. Verse 2. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for this letter that Paul was inspired to write by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we thank you for this special time to gather together as saints in your holy name. And Lord, I especially thank you for this time to devote our attention to the scriptures. And I just pray that as we look at this passage, Lord, rather difficult passage, Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand it, help us to think, help us to use our minds, help us to reflect upon our own experience. And Lord, help us to understand what it is you are saying here, because Lord, we're not gathering to hear the words of any man. We want to hear you, Lord. So please speak through me this morning, Lord. Let your scriptures have a voice. May our ears be attentive to what the scriptures have to say. And may we be changed and edified and encouraged. Lord, transform us by the renewing of our minds. Help us to leave here with less lies in our head and more truth in our head. And Lord, I just pray that you would be honored and that this would all turn to your glory. This is why we're here, Lord. Thank you for your amazing grace. And thank you again for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's often said that one of the advantages of expositional preaching, and by expositional preaching, I mean preaching through a book of the Bible like we do here at All Saints Church, where you're, you're not avoiding any of the, the verses and you're going verse by verse looking at what the text means. I'm not just picking a verse and then talking about whatever I want, but what we're seeking to do is understand the text itself. And it's often been said that the, one of the advantages of expositional preaching is that you can't avoid controversial passages and subjects. How many of you have heard that before, right? It's often said. For many people, that might not be an advantage, but an affliction. This morning, the passage that we read is one of those controversial passages that, as we're going through the book of Galatians, we can't avoid, nor should we avoid and it's no mystery why this passage is controversial. It's because this passage is dealing with the Holy Spirit. And how many of you know, been a Christian for a while, that the subject of the Holy Spirit is a rather controversial one? 
If any doctrine is hard to pin down for Bible readers, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is notoriously difficult. That's because there's an immense amount of material in the Bible about the Holy Spirit. If you were to chart it, if you were to write down every reference to the Holy Spirit in the Bible, you'd have an extremely long list. There's an immense amount of material, and not only is there an immense amount of material, the material is diverse, and that material reveals that the operations of the Spirit are vast and multidimensional, meaning if you were to say, the Holy Spirit is this, and you were to try to pin down a definition, then there'd be other material in the Bible that say, well, no, that definition doesn't really capture this aspect of the Holy Spirit. And if you say, okay, well, this aspect then is what the Holy Spirit's all about, then you'd be saying, well, no, it misses this over here. It's hard to package the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in a neat and tidy way. It's hard to frame it theologically in a neat and tidy way. And I think that God probably meant for that to be so. That this isn't a subject that we can package in a neat and tidy way. There is much unutterable mystery here. How many of you know there's things in life that are unutterable and mysterious? I just think of when Paul said when he went to the third heaven and when he came back, he says, there's things I, you can't even utter. Not everything is packaged neat and tidy, is it? And I think this is one of those things. But nevertheless, there is still much that we can say about the Holy Spirit, and indeed we must say about the Spirit if we're to be faithful to the Scriptures, because there is a lot of bad, false things that are said about the Spirit. And it's not all a mystery. There are things we need to say. Here we have the first mention in verse 2 of chapter 3 of Galatians of the Holy Spirit in the book of Galatians, the first mention of the Spirit in the book of Galatians. And what we're going to see is that the Spirit is a major concept in the book of Galatians. You should know that if you're familiar with the book. It will, this, the Holy Spirit is a subject that will appear many more times in this short little book. Sixteen times total is the Holy Spirit mentioned in the book of Galatians. And in the New Testament, the book of Galatians, the book of Romans, the book of 1 Corinthians, and the Gospel of John are the four books that say the most about the Holy Spirit of all other books in the New Testament. So if you really want to go to the books that discuss the Spirit and not just give it a passing mention, Galatians is one of the four that you have to go to. Now let's look at this passage, because in this passage that we read, I'd like to draw our attention to two main things that are said here about the Holy Spirit. Two main things that are said. First of all, Paul says in verse 2, Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And so what we see here, and what verse 2 says is actually reiterated in verse 5. So if you look at verse 5, the same thing is said. So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit, that's just looking at it from the other perspective, did you receive the Spirit, or does he who provides you that with that gift of the Spirit and works power among you or miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? What we see here in verse 2 and 5 is that the Holy Spirit is something to be received. True? The Holy Spirit is something to be received. It's a thing that God gives. What we also see in this passage is seen in verse 3. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? 
Now here there's an obvious parallel with verse 2. He says in verse 2, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or the hearing of faith? Think about it. You began by the Spirit. Are you now being perfected by the flesh? The parallel in these two verses is that beginning by the Spirit is connected with the hearing of faith in verse 2. And being perfected by the flesh is connected with by the works of the law in verse 2. Have you, did, have you noticed that when, in your reading of Galatians? There's a parallel here. But what we see in verse 3 is that not only is the Holy Spirit something to be received, but the Holy Spirit is also the means of receiving. It's not just the thing that is received. It is also the means of, or the way in which people begin, the way in which people receive. And this is a perfect example of the diverse, multi-dimensional nature of God's Spirit. We receive the Spirit by the Spirit. Notice the multi-dimensional nature here of the Holy Spirit. And so I've titled this sermon, Receiving the Spirit by the Spirit, Part 1. Because we're going to be taking two Sundays to look at this passage. Receiving the Spirit by the Spirit. And this morning we're going to look at one of those aspects. We're going to look at receiving the Spirit. What does that mean? What is that? In, what is involved in receiving the Spirit? And next week we're going to look at the way or the means of receiving the Spirit, which is by the Spirit. That's what we're going to look at next week. Now we're in, and I'll just give us this warning that in these two sermons we're really going to have to put on our thinking caps. Some sermons are not so difficult and some are. And I think this is one where we're going to have to be wearing our thinking hats as we look at this passage and refl- and think about it together. So receiving the Spirit by the Spirit. And this morning, we're going to look at receiving the Spirit. Now last week, I mentioned that at this point in the letter, Paul is at the heart of the letter. All the preliminary introductory remarks are over, Paul is now addressing the Galatians directly. He's talking to them now. He's not just telling them about what he said to Peter. He's talking to them now. The Galatians are departing from the gospel. This is the the context and the situation of the letter. The Galatians are being foolish. They're being bewitched by false teachers, according to verse 1 of chapter 3 who are coming to them and saying, Paul's got it wrong. It's not simply by grace that a person is righteous before God and becomes one of God's children. Grace is a wonderful thing, and we all believe in grace, the false teachers say. Of course we believe in grace. But Paul is wrong when he says it's just grace, and simply by believing uh, does a person come become righteous and become a child of God. The false teachers say, no, that's false. That uh, is ignoring the, the law. And Jesus didn't come to do away with the law. Jesus came to fulfill the law. And if we're going to be real Christians, if we're going to be righteous, if we're going to be God's children, then it's not simply by grace through faith. Yes, grace and faith are important. But we must also keep the law in order to be saved. We must also keep the law in order to be righteous. We must also keep the law and do God's commandments in order to be children of Abraham and children of God. And the Galatians are actually buying into this. See, if they weren't buying into it, if they were just hearing it, but they weren't actually buying into it, Paul wouldn't have written a letter so intense like this and so, uh, re- you know, rebuking them like this. He would have written and said, watch out, guys, stand your ground. 
But here he's actually saying, you foolish, bewitched people, who's deceiving you? Is it all, is it all in vain? Has it all been in vain? Has everything you've endured, everything you've suffered, everything you've been taught for nothing? And so that's what is going on. It's the issue of how are we saved? How are we justified? How do we become God's children? Through faith alone or through the law? Paul now here in chapter 3 begins to urgently reason with them. He's going to be urgently reasoning with them for the rest of the letter, and he will be getting into Scripture. He will be sharing Scripture with them and discussing Scripture with them. But before he does here, we have a series of rapid-fire questions, and they're all drawn from the Galatians' own experience. So before he gets into the technical Scripture stuff, he's like, Think about your own experience for a second, you guys. And he gives them a whole bunch of questions. The commentator John Chrysostom in the 4th century said this, at this point in his commentary on Galatians. I quote, Before Paul had convinced them by what he had said to... Before Paul had convinced them by what he had said to Peter, now he encounters them entirely with arguments drawn from what had occurred had not occurred elsewhere, but from what had happened among themselves. And though there's many questions here in this passage, there's a whole bunch of questions here, they're actually all subsumed into the first question, into the one question. All the other questions are just subsets of the question here in chapter 2 that's reiterated in chapter 5. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. So, Paul introduces the question by saying, this is the only thing I want to find out from you, which shows the importance of the question and its convincing power. It's quite a convincing question. Now, what is the question? Here's the important question that he asks them when he tells them to reflect on their experience. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? So the question isn't, did you receive the Spirit? Question mark. I actually had someone ask me that once. This man who I believe was a false teacher, and I confronted his false teaching. And in response to me, he didn't deal with what I was saying. He just like, have you received the Holy Spirit? Implying that the reason you don't get what I'm saying is because you haven't received the Holy Spirit. Paul doesn't say, did you guys receive the Holy Spirit? He says, how did you receive it? Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Now, there are several assumptions in this question. First of all, Paul assumes that they did receive the Holy Spirit. He's not doubting that. And secondly, he's, he's assuming that they know that they received the Holy Spirit and that they know how they received the Holy Spirit, right? He's assuming those three things. These guys did receive it. They know it that they received it, and they know how they received it. Stanley Horton says here, commenting here, there was obviously nothing vague or indefinite about the experience of the Galatian believers. They received the Spirit in a definite act. They knew it. Paul knew it. Paul could never have used their experience in this kind of argument if it had not been so. Right? 
I mean, if they didn't know that they received the Spirit and they didn't know how they received the Spirit, could Paul have used this argument in such a convincing way? He's like, this is the only thing I want to know, guys. This is going to conclusively prove it. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or hearing of faith? And if they didn't know, you could see the Galatians just like reading that, you know, blink, blink, what? (laughs) What's Paul talking about? So there's nothing vague or indefinite about it. Now, that's kind of scary for some of us, isn't it? (laughs) Maybe it's scary for you to hear that. And you think, wait a second, (laughs) kind of seems vague and indefinite to me. There's two issues we need to address here. First, when did this happen? When did the Galatians receive the Spirit? Did they receive the Spirit at the point of their conversion? When they first believed? When they put their faith in Christ and were saved? Was it at that salvation conversion moment? Or, as some Christians think, did they receive the Spirit subsequent to their conversion and subsequent to their salvation? Is the reception of the Spirit here something that happens later, after you become a Christian? And there are some Christians who don't have the Spirit. And there are some Christians who have received the Spirit. And it's just kind of a a bonus or an extra blessing for Christians. When did they receive the Spirit? Now up front I'll say this, that the majority of commentators are settled on this question here in Galatians chapter 3, verse 2, that Paul is clearly talking about conversion in Galatians 3, verse 2. The majority of commentators think it's not even up for debate. In the context here, and if you look carefully, Paul is clearly talking about when they became Christians. That is when they received the Holy Spirit. First of all, look at the next verse, verse 3. Remember, there's a connection between verse 2 and verse 3. Verse 3 is talking about the same event as verse 2, but from a different angle. And in verse 3, he says, Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit... Are you now being perfected by the flesh? So the word begun is very important there. Did you guys receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? You know the answer, guys. You began it by the Spirit. You began by the hearing with faith. And so receiving the Spirit was when they began. Receiving the Spirit was at the beginning. The beginning of their hearing with faith, the beginning of their hearing the gospel and believing. Because what's the foolishness of verse 3? is that they're departing from justification through faith alone. That's what they're departing from. They're, they're, they're leaving justification through faith alone. He says, you guys are so foolish. You began by the Spirit. You began with justification through faith alone. That's how you got saved. And that's the problem here in Galatians. The idea here is starting and finishing your Christian life or your Christian race. And it's interesting that Paul, in another place in, in, the, in the New Testament, uses the exact same Greek words and captures the exact same idea, although he is talking about it from a different perspective. And that's Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. And that's where Paul says, he that began a good work in you is going to carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And that the idea here of beginning and completing is is the same Greek words verbatim. 
And the same idea. God began a good work in you when you became a Christian. That's why you believed. You put your faith in him because God began a good work in you. And God, if you're his work, if you're born of him, if you're his workmanship, God will carry it on to the end of your race. God will bring you to the final uh, finish line. He will see to it not only that you first believe, but that you persevere all the way to the end. And so that beginning and that ending is the same here. It's the beginning of your Christian faith. This tells us that that is when they received the Spirit. Secondly, the second thing that shows us that receiving the Spirit is at conversion and not subsequent to conversion is that there's an inseparable connection between justification and the reception of the Spirit. And this is first seen by seeing the parallel between chapter 3, verse 2, and chapter 2, verse 16. Look at chapter 3, verse 2 again. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now look at chapter 2, verse 16. Paul has already been talking about this contrast between works of the law and faith. And here it is in Chapter 2, verse 16. Nevertheless, we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ Jesus, and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. So already, he's already contrasted the works of the law and faith. He's put them against each other when he's discussing justification. Now in verse 2, he's putting works of law and faith again against each other, but now he's talking about the reception of the Spirit. Both justification and the reception of the Spirit comes to us not by the works of the law, but by faith, the hearing of faith. And it's the same faith. It's not some different faith, right? What we believe when we become justified, we believe the gospel. We believe that we're sinners. We believe that Christ died for our sins. We believe that salvation is a free gift. We trust in this grace. What we are believing when we become justified is the same faith, the same hearing with faith when we receive the Spirit. It's not, the Bible doesn't talk about believing in the gospel and then later on talk about believing in something else in order to receive the Spirit. So we can see here that the Spirit and justification are inseparable things. Both attained through faith and not through the law. But the parallel between justification and spirit, the receiving of the spirit, continues as we go on in chapter 3. It's related to the blessing. Look at chapter 3, verse 8. In verse 8, we're talking about justification. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel before to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed, in you. So notice how the blessing is connected with justification. But then look down in verse 14 and notice how the blessing is connected with the reception of the Spirit. In order that in Christ the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So notice how when you look at it in, from the perspective of the blessing, if a person is blessed, brothers and sisters, by God, they are both justified and they've received the Spirit. 
There is no blessing apart from justification and apart from reception of the promise of the Spirit by faith, according to verse 14. We also see the, the relationship, the inseparable relationship between the two in the issue of sonship. Look at chapter 4, verse 5. In the issue of sonship, which is a very important concept that uh, we don't often think about. Verse 5, so that Christ might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So notice that when you get redeemed from the law, and I'm going to paraphrase that with the word justification, you're not under the law for your justification. You're not under the law trying to be justified by the law and hence cursed. You're redeemed from that whole system through Jesus Christ and justification through faith. Amen? When you receive justification or redemption from under the law, you receive the adoption as sons. And then look at verse 6. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So notice how justification and receiving the spirit, which here it's called the spirit of sonship, or the spirit of his son, are inseparable. This parallel is also seen when we look at the promise. Chapter 3, verse 14. We looked at this already, but now look at it from the perspective of promise. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive what? The promise of the Spirit. And so here Paul equates the promise with the Spirit. But look at verse 21 and 22 and see how the promise is related to justification. 21 and 22. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. But the scripture, he says that's not how it is, the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith, which we know is connected with the Spirit, in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And he goes on, of course, to talk about being justified by faith. So when we look at it from the angle of the promise, we also see the relationship between the justification and the Spirit. Is that making sense? Everyone kind of following the connections here. And lastly, you can see the parallel and the the relationship between the two when we look at this relationship from the perspective of life. Chapter 2, verse 19, For I, through the law, died to the law. This is justification so that I might live to God. Paul is talking about justification. And when I died to the law as the way of my justification, and when I put my faith in Christ to be righteous before God, that is when I became alive to God. So, true or false, everyone who is justified is alive unto God. True, right? Look at chapter 3, verse 21 and 22 again. Is the law against the promises of God? May it never be. For if the law had... If there had been a law given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would have been based on the law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith, life, the spirit in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. It's no mystery in the Bible that the spirit is all about life, isn't it? And no one could could 
be conceived to have life apart from the Spirit. Amen? You could never be alive unto God apart from the Spirit. And yet we saw that in order to be alive unto God, a person has to be justified. It should not surprise us, therefore, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, that Paul basically equates his own ministry as the, he calls his own ministry the ministry of righteousness and the ministry of the Spirit. He sees those things as equivalent. You remember that in 2 Corinthians chapter 3? He says, my ministry is the ministry of righteousness, i.e. the ministry of the Spirit. The letter kills, that's the law. The law kills people, but the Spirit brings life. Righteousness brings life. We need to, brothers and sisters, think of the of righteousness and justification and the Spirit together as the Apostle Paul did and as all the apostles did and as God does. Have you ever thought of that? Have you put those two things together? Or have you thought of them in separate? Have you thought of them as separate? Or have you never thought of them at all? In your Christianity, do you only think of, I'm righteous and I'm justified, I don't know anything about this spirit thing? Or are they separate for you? I'm righteous and justified, and later I have to get the spirit. That's not the way that the Bible talks about it. Jose Aguilar, Mexican theologian, uh, wrote an excellent paper on this uh, topic of justification in the Spirit. He, he concludes here, quote, Justification implies life, and the presence of life implies justification. There's an unbreakable bond. One cannot exist without the other. And given that the Spirit is by definition life-giving, we can say, therefore, that justification and the Spirit appear as correlative elements. The presence of one implies the other. The presence of one implies the other. And he goes on to say, there is in Christians a life-giving condition due to the Spirit, and righteousness appears as the cause of this condition. So brothers and sisters, the reception of the Spirit is when we put our faith in the gospel. When we hear the gospel and put our faith for the first time at conversion, that is when we received the Spirit. And what that means is that every Christian has received the Spirit. Everyone here this morning who is a Christian, who has put their faith in Christ and who is justified, is someone who has the Spirit, the Spirit that Paul is talking about here in chapter 3, verse 2. At your conversion, as Ephesians chapter 1, 13 says, when you heard the gospel of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed it, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, Paul says that the Spirit that dwells in us will give life to our mortal bodies. Of course, if anyone doesn't have the Spirit, he is not, he does not belong to Christ. Amen? Remember this? Romans 8, verse 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So when did you receive the Spirit? The day that you belonged to Jesus. The day that you believed. God breathed his breath of life into you when you believed in Jesus Christ. Just like when God took Adam out of the dirt something that was lifeless and had no life. God breathed life into him and he became alive. 
And so it is when you become a Christian, you go from being this dead lump of clay. In fact, you're really worse than Adam because he wasn't even a sinner. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. You deserve to be dead. And through Jesus Christ, through righteousness, through faith, when you believe, God breathes life into you and you become alive and you can never die because you have the spirit that will raise you from the dead. Amen? You have the spirit. So Paul knows they had it. They know they had it. The next issue here is not when did they receive it, which we just looked at. Paul uh, assumes that they knew when they received and that they knew how they received. And now the next question is, how did they know that they received the Spirit. He asked them, did you receive it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? How did they know that they received the Spirit? How do we know when we receive the Spirit? Is the receiving of the Spirit a physical feeling? When you believed in Jesus Christ and God breathed life into you and you received the Holy Spirit, did you feel anything physical? Did you feel a little gust of wind come through the window? Were there radical manifestations like in the book of Acts? Do we feel anything? Must we experience radical manifestations? Or is there no way to discern it? You just have to be well taught. Is our possession, in other words, of the Spirit, something we must assent to by faith because it's imperceptible? Or is it something we do perceive? Think about it for a moment. I mean, we've just talked about how we've all received the Spirit at conversion. Is that something that's imperceptible and indiscernible? I didn't discern it. I didn't perceive it. I just believe it because here it says in the Bible. And some Christians would say that. There's no way you can know. You just read it in the Bible and say, Amen, I received the Spirit when I became a Christian. Is it really imperceptible? Brothers and sisters, I believe that when we receive the Spirit, it's not a physical feeling. Sometimes there may be radical manifestations, but it's never nothing, and it's never imperceptible. It's never undiscernible. The receiving of the Spirit isn't something that comes with nothing that you can discern, because the reception of the Spirit is always discernible and carries clear evidences. The problem is we are just not always good at recognizing those evidences. You see? So undoubtedly so, when you receive the Spirit, you can discern that. We just don't always discern it because of our ignorance. Maybe we aren't well taught to notice what those evidences really are. The Galatians were. Paul knew the Galatians knew that they had received the Spirit and how they had and when they had. And Paul appeals to this. When justification through faith happens and the Spirit of life comes in, things do change. How many of you can say things do change? And let me give, give you an example of what changes. When you put your faith in Christ for your salvation and believe the truth, despair is turned into hope. Shackles are turned into liberty. Dejection is turned into joy. 
The tumult of the heart is turned to peace. Hatred of God is turned to love for God and for the brothers. And poisonous words of the Satan's lies that come out of your mouth and had come out of your mouth before are turned to words of truth. Is that true or false? When you became a Christian, did you receive hope? Did did you receive peace with God? Did you receive joy? Did you receive love for God and for the brothers? And did you lose your hatred for God and for those who are righteous through faith? And isn't it true that according to the Bible, you also stop producing false words out of your mouth? And I'm not, of course, I've preached on this several times, but I'm talking about now what comes out of your mouth is truth about Christ, not false things about Christ. Truth about God, not false things about God. John Calvin calls these the ordinary privilege. This is the ordinary privilege of adoption. A remarkable phrase. The ordinary privilege of adoption. Interesting, huh? In Martin Luther's own experience, he describes his own soul as going from hating God and being full of fear of punishment and damnation. In a moment, the moment he understood righteousness through faith, he turned from hating God to loving God. And he turned from being full of fear, and he said, it was like I went to heaven. It was like heaven just opened up and I went in. I was filled with joy, and my fear went away, and my conscience was at rest after I believed. Things really did change inside of me when I believed in righteousness through faith. And it wasn't only true for Luther. You can read his famous experience of when he first understood righteousness through faith. But here's what he said about all the other people who began to believe it when it was first being preached in his day. Luther writes this, At the beginning of our preaching, the doctrine of faith had a most happy course, and down fell the Pope's pardons, purgatory, vows, masses, and such like abominations, which drew with them the ruin of all popery. Our doctrine was raising up and comforting many poor consciences, which had long been oppressed with men's traditions under the papacy, which was a plain tyranny and racking and crucifying of consciences. Strong language. Many therefore gave thanks unto God that through the gospel they were so mightily delivered out of these snares and this slaughterhouse of consciences. Amazing language. So Luther describes it like this. We were in a slaughterhouse of consciences like on torture racks. That's what was going on in our consciences under the system of Roman Catholicism. When we believed in salvation through the works of law, our consciences were tormented. And he doesn't describe here, you know, we hated God. We had fear. We had no joy. We had no hope. We died in despair. But when the gospel of truth came, when righteousness through faith came, when the message of God's love for sinners and grace for sinners came, wow, everything so mightily changed. The spirit of adoption came in. And the spirit of adoption changes everything. We just underestimate this. We just fail to notice it. We fail to recognize how profoundly, what a profound change, what a profoundly discernible change this really is. We go from being servants who don't know God to being sons who have the knowledge of the Father and the same life that he has. 
Turn with me to Romans chapter 8, verse 15. And Paul talks about the spirit of adoption that we receive here. In Romans 8, verse 15, Paul is describing what happens when the spirit is received at conversion. If any man does not have the spirit, he's not Christ's. But he goes on to talk about the spirit here in verse 15. Chapter 8, verse 15 of Romans, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Every Christian, this is true for every Christian, right? Crying Abba, Father. Here's the thing to notice. Crying Abba, Father is not some general, vague thing that every religious person does, right? Crying Abba, Father is not some uh, mundane, liturgical phrase that everyone does, regardless of whether you're a Christian, regardless of whether you believe in Christ, regardless of whether you understand righteousness through faith. And how many of you know there's a lot of religious people in this world They're not Christians. They don't believe in salvation by grace through faith. They're not trusting in Christ for their righteousness. And they constantly refer to God as their father, right? They constantly, God is my father. God is our father. God is everybody's father. But crying, Abba, Father, do you really think it's just this mundane thing that, oh, by the way, you can use in the liturgy, Abba Father now. Why? I don't know. But now as Christians, we can call God as Father. It just kind of caught and took off. Crying Abba Father is inseparably connected with being freed from fear. Crying Abba Father is inseparably connected with being freed from fear, according to Romans 8.15. It's the opposite of the spirit of slavery leading to fear. It's the spirit of sonship where we now know the Father which leads to hope and which leads to joy and which leads to peace. And if you think I'm pressing this and I'm saying, and, and you say, Eli, you're just, you're just making the Holy Spirit all about joy and peace and hope. Well, doesn't the Bible do that? Because the kingdom of God is not righteous, is not in food or drink, but it's in righteousness, joy and peace in the Holy Ghost. And may the God of hope fill you with all hope and joy and peace in believing so that you may abound with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit, right? So the spirit of sonship, by which we call Abba Father, is the opposite of this slavish fear and despair. It brings these discernible uh, evidences of hope, joy, and peace. Because everyone who has believed in the gospel as we've talked about many times, now knows the Father. Amen? We now know the truth. We now know the reality that sets us free, Jesus said. The truth will set you free. If you just knew reality, you'd be set free. If you just knew who God who God is, you would be set free from all of your slavish fear and despair and, and uh, restlessness. You would have life. 
But if you don't know Christ, then you don't know the Father, the God of amazing grace who gives righteousness through faith, the God of amazing love who sent his Son to die for our sins and provide for us righteousness that we need, even though we don't deserve it. If you don't know this God, you don't know the Father, you can't really cry, Abba, Father, without fear. You don't have the Spirit. You don't have life because you haven't believed. So while radical manifestations sometimes occur, and I think we see that in the book of Acts, what always occurs when a person puts their faith in Jesus Christ and when a person receives the Spirit is this discernible experience of adoption. What always occurs is someone who believes in Christ receives the Spirit of the Son. And there's righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. Now, lastly here, in Galatians chapter 3. This only, this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? I know you received it. You know you received it. You know what it was like. You discerned the experience. Now, my question is, How did you receive the Spirit? How did you receive the Spirit of Sonship? Did you receive it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Paul asks them this to remind them of how they received it. Here we see there are only two ways that you could hypothetically receive the Spirit of a Son. Hypothetically, you could receive life. Hypothetically, you could receive joy and peace. And Luther rightly pointed out something here in this verse. He says there's only two categories, hearing with faith and works of the law. And what is not hearing with faith is works of the law. What is not hearing with faith is works of the law. Luther pointed that out to say, look, Paul's not talking about the kinds of works. Paul's not talking about the ceremonial law versus the moral law. Paul's not saying, did you guys receive the Spirit by doing the ceremonial stuff? No, but you still have to do the moral stuff. It's not about the, the problem here in Galatians isn't the kind of works that the Galatians are falling prey to. The problem in Galatians is that it's, the Galatians are falling prey to the idea that you have to have any works in order to be right with God because what is not hearing of faith is the works of the law. If it's not the message is being believed, then whatever you may say, it's the works of the law. It doesn't matter ceremonial or, or moral. What is it? Was it through faith or was it through works that you received the Spirit? And of course, he doesn't need an answer. He's not really asking for an answer. It's a rhetorical question because of course it wasn't by the works of the law that you received the Spirit. Of course it wasn't by the works of the law because no one obeys the law. No one fulfills the requirements of the law. Of course it was by the hearing of faith and not by the works of the law. And the hearing of faith draws attention to the fact that it's about a message that is to be believed, that Christianity is about good news, the proclamation of truth, the truth about God and what God has done, and it requires hearing, and it requires ears. And so we see here how important hearing is in the Bible, how important words are that we speak, 
And we see the importance of hearing all throughout the Bible from the very beginning where God is constantly telling Israel to listen. Shema Israel. Hear, O Israel. Listen, O Israel. Hearken to what I have to say. And then to Jesus in the New Testament, he that has ears to hear, let him hear. It's all about hearing. It's all about listening. It's all about a message. It's all about God's words that we live by. And not about our keeping of the law, which doesn't work. Now, I'd like to ask you, brothers and sisters, this morning, ask yourself, when did you receive the Spirit? When did you receive the Spirit of Sonship? When were you delivered from slavish fear? When did you receive eternal life, peace, joy, and love for God? Ask yourself, was it when you kept the law? Anybody? How many of you received the spirit of sonship and deliverance from fear when you kept the law? Now, I agree, hypothetically, if you kept all the law, you wouldn't need to be afraid. But how many of you received, that's, that's your story, that's your testimony, you know? I used to have all this slavish fear, I was afraid of going to hell. I was upset with God and angry with God, and I didn't have any peace in my life. Then I went to church and I heard about all these rules, and I kept those rules. And when I kept those rules, I experienced peace and joy in my life. God became my father, he loves me now, and I have eternal life. <laughs> Is that your story? <laughs> Or was it when you believed the gospel? Or was it when you heard the good news that God loves you and that he sent Christ to die for you and that Jesus paid everything for you and that it's a totally free gift for you to have and that you can be righteous through faith and that's, wow, good news, eternal life for the taking. Come, anyone who's thirsty. Or was it then that you received the spirit of sonship and were delivered from slavish fear and received real life? Which was it? When did you rejoice in hope and rest quiet in his love? When you kept the law or when you believed the gospel? Ask yourself, when do you cry, Abba, Father, without fear of punishment, knowing that God has forgiven you and has, has enveloped you in the arms of his inexhaustible grace? When you keep the law or when you believe the gospel? our own experience, my own experience, of failing to keep the law and yet receiving this hope and this joy through the gospel is proof enough of the truth of the gospel and the folly of legalism. I know I fail. I know I don't keep the works of the law. But I know the spirit of sonship through faith in the good news. If you haven't experienced this spirit of sonship, and if you haven't got peace and hope and joy and love for God, and you don't know this experience that I'm talking about, this discernible experience, it's because you haven't yet received the Spirit, and it's because you haven't yet believed the Gospel. And this morning... You can believe the gospel. You can hear the message about God and about you. And by simply hearing it with faith, you 
will be justified and you yourself will receive that very same spirit that all Christians have. Simply by believing it's yours. The question is, do you have ears to hear or not? We Christians have, respe- have received the Spirit when we believed the gospel. We are filled with the same Spirit when we think and fill our minds and remember this truth. And this morning, as, we, uh, as I close, we'll be taking communion. And what's communion all about? It's all about remembering. Remembering what we first believed when we became Christians and when we first received the spirit of sonship, remembering that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, his body broken, his blood shed for the remission of sins, for the new covenant, so we could be forgiven, so we could know God, so we could become his children. And so as we take communion, I'd like us to focus especially on this as we remember. Let us focus especially on where our life has come from, where our hope has come from, where our peace has come from, where our joy comes from, where our love for God comes from, where the spirit of adoption comes from as we take communion. And let us remember that it does not come through our righteous doings but through Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. It comes through him and not through us. And it's on the basis of his bloody sacrifice and his resurrection that the Spirit of God has been breathed into these dry bones, right? Dead in trespasses and sins. God has breathed life and given us life on the basis of what Christ has done. Let's remember this as we take communion, how we receive the Spirit. And to God alone be all the glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you would look upon dry bones, undeserving enemies, dead in trespasses and sins. And in your unfathomable love, you would want to breathe into us life and give us joy, peace, and hope and make us your children. Lord, and as the Apostle John was struck by this, behold what manner of love the Father has given unto, has given to us that we should be called the children of God. I pray that this morning as we take communion, as we reenact the Lord's Supper and proclaim your death until you come, that we too would be struck by what manner of love you've given to us that we should be called the children of God that you would do that for us, Lord, and deliver us from our deepest fears and give us our greatest need. Thank you for justification through faith, for taking our sins away and giving us righteousness in, in its place. 
through the blood of Christ and by faith alone. And thank you for the spirit that comes with justification. Lord, may we uh, not be ignorant of the spirit of sonship that's within us, but what we re- sh- let us revel in it. Let us enjoy it. Let us call you Abba Father every single day without fear, knowing that this is what we can do because we are your children who are delivered from all of our sins. And Lord, for those who are not your children this morning, please move in their hearts by your Spirit and open their ears to hear the good news that they too may become part of the family. Lord, I pray all of this in your Son's holy name. In Jesus' name, amen.